1839, work commenced to build a tunnel over two miles long beneath the streets of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England. This was to get coal to the River Tyne. In later years it would provide shelter to the people of the city during German bombing raids during World War II. It was then left empty, abandoned and forgotten before the damp, dark, eerie tunnel was reopened as a historic visitor attraction in much more recent years. Since reopening, however, what is clear is that the tunnel wasn't as empty as it was first seemed. As the ghosts of the past remained underground, waiting, shadows are seen, talking is heard, and there's even been reports of a deep, unmistakable growl. But what would be lying in wait for me when I led my small team into this unwelcoming tunnel after dark? Tonight, join me for a very special episode as we head beneath the streets of Newcastle and investigate the Victoria Tunnel. Welcome to the 6th Patreon bonus episode of How Haunted. How Haunted is a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as I take you along on a paranormal investigation at one of the most haunted locations in the world. I'll explain in detail every aspect of the ghost hunt and once the investigation gets underway you'll hear audio from the investigation as it happens you'll be part of the team and you'll join us for what is guaranteed to be one hell of a night tonight let me take you to my native newcastle upon tyne where we'll head into the darkness of the victoria tunnel and ask the question how haunted Listener discretion is advised, as this episode features real audio from an actual paranormal investigation where anything could happen. Listen on, if you dare. It had been a long time since I'd carried out an investigation in my native northeast, following a lot of time spent looking for ghosts in York and Edinburgh over the previous couple of years. But the 19th of October 2012 saw me excited to the point of almost bursting at the location I had lined up for us, on that mild, dry autumn evening. At around 7pm, I made the short drive to pick up my good friend Andy Markwell. Andy is someone you won't have heard me mention on the podcast before, as he did come along to one of the York investigations, but following that night, swore he would never go looking for ghosts ever again. However, Andy loves tunnels and caves, basically dark underground things, and having visited on the daytime tour a couple of times, the lure of getting access to the Victoria Tunnel, including an area the daytime tour doesn't include, was just too strong and Andy was on board for tonight. We met our friend John Crozier in the Clooney pub at about 7.20pm. 
The Clooney is a bar popular with students in the Oosburn Valley area of Newcastle. He'd found a table and he was sitting reading a book. We got a drink and we joined him, shooting the breeze as we waited for the final member of our team, my younger brother Tom. He arrived shortly afterwards and the four of us caught up before heading out into the night at around 7.45pm. We made the relatively short work to the Ooze Street entrance of the Victoria Tunnel. Andy was totally buzzing about getting into the tunnel after dark. I've never seen him so excited. He was like a kid at Christmas. He was telling us facts about the tunnel, such as no matter how warm or cold it happens to be outside, the temperature within the tunnel is a constant 12 degrees Celsius all year round. Tom had never been before and wanted to know everything. John and I walked behind them. I told John about some of the new gadgets I brought along with me and my big box of tricks and that we could put them to the test in the field for the first time tonight. We arrived just before 8pm, which was the agreed time that we would meet our two Victoria Tunnel guides. I showed Tom the illustrated boards outside the tunnel entrance that charts the tunnel's history. I wandered to the road to look along the length of it to see if there was any sign of our guides. There was nobody around at all. I looked out across the Ooseburn, the small river that runs through the area. It was calm and flat. The reflection of the moon was so large and clear that it almost looked like it was actually just below the surface of the water. Hello, a cheery voice said, and a bloke walked past me down the covered path to the tunnel entrance. The four of us looked at each other, wondering who he was and where he'd suddenly popped up from. He came back up the path and talked to us. He said his name was Dave and he was a trainee guide at the tunnel. He explained that there was another guide who was also called Dave. He was due any moment and he would have the keys to let us into the tunnel. We all introduced ourselves and we got chatting as the time ticked by. I checked my watch. It was 8.05pm. Dave said that he would go up to the nearby farm where the daytime tours leave from in case our missing guide was waiting for us up there. Ten minutes later our second guide walked up the street towards us. As he walked past us towards the tunnel entrance, he told us he'd been stuck in traffic and he said that he wasn't meant to be on duty tonight. He didn't tell us his name, but after he'd rummaged around in his pocket and produced a big bunch of keys, we all knew this was the other Dave, our second guide. As he unlocked the door, this second Dave told us that there'd been a ghost hunt there the week before. There were loads of them like, a great big mob of them with Ouija boards and all sorts, he said in a strong Geordie accent. They had antennas sticking out of their heads and that. He added this gesturing with his fingers wiggling round sticking out of his head like ants antennas. He went on to tell us that this great big mob hadn't experienced anything. However, we weren't put off by this at all and we couldn't wait to get in there and get involved. The first Dave went down to the first junction with a canary tester gadget to check for gases. He came back satisfied that it was all clear. He gave it to Andy to wear around his neck while we were in the tunnel and he gave John a radio in case we were in need of any help. We grabbed a hard hat each and with that our investigation began. And he's absolutely buzzing because we can go beyond the air. Uh, the tour takes you to and he's going to let way in. No, this is, well, maybe he's, there's some kind of art installation somewhere, isn't there? Oh, that's really good. He's going to give us a history of the film or something. Oh, that's a good one.
So this is this art installation. Oh, yeah. Uh, the ground's a bit wet here. Oh. I thought it was a little bit damp, to be fair, but I at least said it wasn't. Oh, it's a bit... It's proper damp here. Walking over some running water here. It's dirty and wet. We tentatively made our way into the inky blackness, one at a time, along the narrow tunnel, uncertain of what lay in wait for us hidden in the darkness. Construction began on the Victoria Tunnel, named for the popular young Queen Victoria, in 1839. It was designed for the purpose of transporting coal from the Spittletongues Colliery down to the river, ready for shipping, with huge demand for coal. The need for an underground solution came about as the result of the owners, Latimer and Porter, being refused permission to build a surface wagonway across the town moor and across the city. This tunnel was dug in sections, with John Cherry, a former Yorkshire lead miner, managing the tunnelling, and David Nixon, a Newcastle builder, responsible for the building work. 200 workers toiled for two and a half years to build the tunnel, the walls of which were lined in stone and stretched for 2.4 miles. The tunnel ran along a gradual gradient so that the wagons could be moved easily under the gravity of the slope and the weight of the load. The wagons were custom built and their dimensions required the tunnel to be built 2.26 metres high and 1.91 metres wide. The wagons were hauled back to the pithead by a stationary steam engine and a rope tied to the last wagon on the train. On the 7th of April 1842, the Mayor of Newcastle opened the tunnel to an excited crowd which included important merchants from across the city and the city sheriff. At 1pm cannons were fired as a train of eight wagons appeared out of the tunnel. Four of the wagons contained coal and the others a company of ladies and gentlemen and a band of musicians. The Victoria Tunnel proved to be a success financially. The colliery however was struggling and in 1860 the Victoria Tunnel, opened for just 18 years, was closed. The tunnel was left abandoned for almost 80 years until 1939. The city and the entire nation were gripped in fear of the bombs dropped by the German Luftwaffe and people were instructed to practice air raid precautions. At a cost of £37,000, the empty unused tunnel was converted into a communal air raid shelter for 9,000 people. The coal dust was cleaned and some particularly bad stretches of the tunnel were whitewashed. Blast walls made of thick concrete were added at regular intervals to stop bomb blasts and to stop debris being able to affect the entire length of the tunnel. Electric lighting was fitted and a new concrete floor was laid. 500 bunk beds and wooden benches were installed along the walls and chemical toilets enclosed in canvas cubicles were built near the entrances. 500 bunk beds and wooden benches were installed along the walls and chemical toilets enclosed in canvas cubicles were built near the entrances. To make the tunnel easily accessible, should the dreaded wail of the air raid siren sound, seven new entrances were completed along the length of the tunnel. These were at Claremont Road, the Hancock Museum, St Thomas's Churchyard, Ridley Place, Shieldfield Green, Craw Hall Road and Ooze Street. At Ooze Street it was possible to walk straight into the tunnel, but the other access points looked like subway entrances and involved walking down a steep corridor. 
During those dreadful wartime years, the tunnel was a dark, damp and uncomfortable place to shelter. So much so that some people chose not to use it, as they found the thought of going down into the tunnel more frightening than facing the German bombers. Those who did rush for the sanctuary of the converted tunnel made themselves as comfortable as they could with their family and neighbours, singing songs to keep spirits high and calm the children down, while waiting anxiously for the all clear from up above. The end of the war also brought about the end of the tunnel's useful life for a second time. And with hard post-war years ahead, anything of value was stripped from the tunnel. Most of the fittings were removed and all of the entrances except Ooze Street were closed. The only reason that the Ooze Street entrance was left alone was that it had been built on private land in the garden of number 14 Ooze Street. After many, many decades of lying empty, a programme of visits was established by the Ooseburn Partnership in 1998, and in 2006 the City Council carried out a series of structural repairs and public safety measures to make a 700 metre stretch of the tunnel safe for the public. In 2009, the Victoria Tunnel opened once again, with tours leaving from the Ooze Street entrance. For many years the questions been asked about whether there are ghosts hiding underground in the darkness offered by the Victoria Tunnel. At the time of our investigation little was known, considering the tunnel had only reopened three short years earlier, and having previously experienced the pitch black, claustrophobic conditions within the tunnel first hand, there's no denying how scary it has the potential to be. Only one person was ever killed in an accident within the tunnel, and that was in a section which is currently inaccessible. However, back in 2012, when we were about to carry out our ghost hunt, the Usburn Trust's website teased us. You may be interested to hear about the sightings of a ghost seen in the Victoria Tunnel by visitors from a paranormal group. In the year 2023, with the benefit of 11 years since our investigation, we do know a little bit more about the ghosts of the Victoria Tunnel. But not a whole lot more surprisingly. Footsteps have been heard by volunteers when there's nobody else known to be in the tunnel, as well as, more worryingly for them, voices. Banging has been heard, as well as a deep growl. In 2018, a tour guide saw the spectral apparition of a man join the group that he was shown around the tunnel on an organised daytime tour, and other reports in more recent years claim that visitors have seen a man walk into a wall and disappear. At the bottom of our initial walk down from the entrance, we turned left, and we walked a couple of hundred feet until we reached a gate, which was unlocked and opened, and beyond it was an art installation. This was as far as we could go. This colourful feature was added when the tunnel reopened in 2009. It was commissioned by artist Adlinda van Kluster, and is a sound and light installation focused on the code names of British military research projects. Andy spotted a little tunnel at ankle height immediately to the left after passing through the gate. He crouched down to look in the tunnel and unwittingly put both of his hands deep into wet mud. We doubled back and we walked back past the junction where we could have taken a right to return to the entrance. And we walked onwards into the deepest part of the tunnel. How are you then? Let's get let's get involved. Right. Let's turn around to go back. There's nothing else that way. After you, Tom. 
the element here, Andy, just being let loose. Or, I mean, even if I were me right now, I'd already be hung. I was at the back, so I turned around and took some photographs into the darkness. On one photo was a mist right in front of me. Could this be my breath? Or could it be something else altogether? Check it out over on the Instagram at HowHauntedPod and let me know what you think. As we got deeper into the tunnel, the temperature remained constant. Andy had already told us that this would be the case. But it did seem to get darker, and the ceiling constantly got lower, and then higher, and then lower again. It wasn't too bad for me at 5'10", but Tom stands 6'3 without his hard hat, and he was getting a sore neck. His stooped walk and gangly frame reminded me of the much maligned Jar Jar Binks from the prequel Star Wars trilogy, but I didn't add to his woes by pointing this out at the time. Beyond the first blast wall, we decided to do what we'd came here for, attempt to make contact with the dead. Andy opted to, rather bravely, carry on along the tunnel on his own, leaving Tom, John and I to do our thing. Just pitch black. I can still make out Andy's torch a bit now it's gone. Just wandering down the tunnel. What's what? I was seeing how far away you were. <laughs> Andy's coming back, I think. We stood still watching the powerful beam from Andy's torch eventually fade from view beyond the next blast wall. The three of us turned our head torches off, and we were plunged into complete and utter darkness. There was total silence, and then John spoke. If there are any spirits that can hear my voice, the three of us come in search of life after death. Please give us a sign, speak to us, touch us, show yourself if you're able. There was a flash of bright light further along the corridor. I whispered, did you see that? Tom responded saying it was most likely Andy coming back. We waited. The light didn't reappear and there was no sign of Andy. Andy, I shouted, my voice echoing loudly around us. But there was no response. Create light if you're able. Did you see that? No. But he's beyond a wall. He is, there's a blast wall there. Is there not a light above? Is there not a light above? He's here for us. If he was, if he was, then maybe he'd have his torch on all the time, wouldn't he? Why was Bernie called Yay? I don't know. John continued to ask aloud for any ghosts in the vicinity to give us some kind of sign. However, after 10 minutes of waiting patiently, all of our attempts to make contact proved fruitless. With no sign of Andy returning, we unanimously agreed to move further along the tunnel and try some new experiments. I led the way with Tom behind me and John bringing up the rear. I'm sure my head torch isn't as bright as it used to be, grumbled Tom, as we walked up the very gradual incline. I turned around and looked at him, illuminating him with my own torch beam. He was pointing his head towards the ceiling, then down to the floor with the purpose of seeing how bright the light was. Then he held his hand out in front of the head torch. I turned back and said, it's not turned on mate. I heard a click and then a beam of light illuminated me from behind, 
casting my long shadow across the tunnel wall ahead. Oh yeah, he mumbled. The further we walked, the damper the tunnel became, never particularly wet, but wet enough to make the ground underfoot a little slippery, and the occasional drip from the low tunnel roof. We reached the end of a long stretch of tunnel, passing a chemical toilet left over from the war, and we were reunited with Andy. I suggested that we try a brand new piece of equipment. This would be a trial run in the field, in preparation for a flurry of Edinburgh investigations that I had lined up for the coming months, as I was working on my book, Ghosts of Edinburgh. I wanted to put the Ghost Touch device to the test. This is a straightforward device with a metal aerial, which when touched, makes the device buzz and a red LED light light up. Similar to the old board game Operation, where if you should touch the metal sides while trying to remove one of the ill man's oddly shaped bones, there was a buzz and his nose lit up bright red. Tom held the device and asked for somebody, anybody, to let us know that they were with us by touching the metal part of the box that he was holding. We waited. You could sense the anticipation. However, nothing happened. I tried asking, but I blanked too, as did John. Ten minutes had passed, and we decided to write this device off for tonight. However, I will use it again in the near future when I go to Edinburgh. And I had another ace up my sleeve that I could barely wait to put to the test later this evening. As we walked back past the chemical toilet from World War II, I took a photograph of it. However, it's barely visible in the resulting image. It's clouded by a thick mist, which wasn't visible when I took the photograph. This too is over on the Instagram. Whoa, I've seen that photo. It's like some, I don't know if I can, do you see what I mean? It's like something down there. Just beyond the chemical toilet was a junction. To the left was a closed and bolted gate. The second Dave had told us to contact him by radio if we wanted to go through this gate. To the right was a steep, wet, muddy slope which went up to one of the wartime entrances to the tunnel. We turned left towards the bolted gate. Andy'd been here on his solo wander around and he led the way. It was very slippy underfoot. What, since we, since you were here before? I was in the correct position on there before. Is it open? Is it locked? Mm-hmm. It's not locked, but we're not supposed to go beyond it. And he reckons the bolt on the second gate has moved. And on our way back down, Tom slipped over, just managing to regain his balance before he hit the deck. Before troubling our guides to get access to the final area of the tunnel beyond the bolted gate, I suggested that we try another new experiment. This experiment is a device that I'd had for probably six months at this point, and I'd been waiting for the right location in which to put it to the test. This device is called the Frank's Box, although it's better known nowadays as a spirit box. It's named for its inventor, Frank Sumpton, who designed the first incarnation of the device in 2002, claiming to have received the idea for the gadget from the spirit world. It works on the principle of electronic voice phenomena, EVP, whereby spirits are able to communicate in the white noise between radio stations. The Frank's box is designed to scan through radio frequencies sequentially for less than a second each. It is through these that the spirits can communicate with the user. 
This device is viewed skeptically by many members of the paranormal community, as many of these frequencies are occupied, so you will hear bits and pieces of words from these stations, and this could easily lead to coincidences or people hearing what they want to hear. Alternatively, it could lead to pareidolia, which means that the listener can make their own interpretations of what they're hearing to suit their requirements. These devices back in 2012 weren't readily available for sale as they are today, and I had to have mine imported from the United States. Before handing over my hard-earned money, I did a lot of research into these devices, as there have been some astounding results which have managed to convince even the most hardened cynics that there may well be some benefit to using these devices as part of an investigation. And indeed today in 2023, these spirit boxes do usually make up part of the Ghost Hunter's arsenal. We turned out our torches and once again we were shrouded in total darkness. However the canary tester around Andy's neck occasionally flashed, flooding the area in an eerie green glow. I turned on the Frank's box and the illuminated LED showed the frequency 520am. I held the scan up arrow for a few seconds and it began quickly cycling through the stations. What is your name? I asked. We waited, listened carefully to the white noise of the scan frequencies. No response. Can you say hello? I requested. Nothing. John spoke up, asking what seemed like a strange question at the time. Are you stood behind Andy? We heard a clear response. Yes. We looked at one another in the dim glow from the display on the box. It was clear we'd all heard the same thing. Did you say yes? I asked to confirm. There was no response. We've came to find proof that there are spirits here within the tunnel. I was interrupted by a voice saying yes through the box. What is your name? I asked in an effort to keep the communication going. Yes, the voice said again. Can you only say yes, asked Tom. Yes, it said for a third time. Are you here now with the four of us, said John. No, said the voice. If there was somebody there, it was playing with us. Are you behind Andy, Tom asked. No, you, the voice said. This freaked Tom out clearly and had him looking over his shoulder. Do you wish to harm us? I asked. John shot me a concerned look. Yes, a voice clearly replied. Do you want us dead? I pressed to try and get some meaningful responses from whoever it was that was speaking with us. As I finished talking, there was a loud rumble overhead, a passing train, which drowned out any response we may have been getting from the Frank's box. This was probably for the best, given the question I just asked. I was determined to try and get a name, so continued to ask questions. What is your name? The voice said what I heard as Ian, but what Tom heard as Steve. So I asked for clarification. Is your name Steve? Yes, he confirmed. Hello, Steve, I said. Do you want to talk to us? No, he confirmed. John said that was a clear no to confirm what we'd all heard. Do you wish to harm us, Steve? I said, placing emphasis on his name. No response. Do you like us being here? No response. Come on, Steve, I challenged. Tell us why you're here. No response. A change of approach was needed. Okay, Steve. How many spirits are here in this tunnel with us? Is there just you? I queried. 
Six, he said. Six, I asked, surprised. Six, he said again. Six, Tom asked again, clearly startled by the response. Six, said Steve again. John quietly said under his breath, he said 666 now. Can you say my name, Steve? My name is Rob. Rob, repeated the voice. John said, that sounded like Rob, which backed up what I'd heard. Tom pointed out that it seemed to be getting darker around us. Did you work in the coal trade, Steve? No, he immediately responded. Forever rational, Andy spoke for the first time during the experiment and pointed out that every time the frequency reached 690am there was a sound. I tuned the radio to 690am and Colin Murray was talking on BBC Radio 5 Live. We discussed this at length. Could the voices we'd heard and could the responses to all of these questions have been Colin Murray, the presenter of the radio show? It seemed unlikely given the responses we'd received and the relevance to the questions asked. However, in the interest of remaining rational, we couldn't rule it out. We will use Frank's box again in the very near future. We thanked Steve if he was there with us. Okay. Are you standing behind Andy over there? Yes. <laughs> that was a clear yes. That was definite, <laughs> definite yes. Can you say yes for us again? Are you standing behind Andy? Right. Are you standing behind our friend further along the tunnel? Maybe. Oh, that's yes. I heard yes again. Did you get yes? I didn't hear it. We've came here tonight to see if there's any spirits within this tunnel. And it would be, we don't mean any disrespect, we've not came to cause you any harm or to make you move on. All we want to do is, is find some kind of proof of your existence. If you could tell us your name, please. Yes. So you can say yes. Come on, talk to us, we know you're here. You're behind Andy. Does that know you? Is that what it says? <laughs> oh, it's behind you, Tom. No. Oh. Are you, sorry, are you behind the guy in front of me? Who just touches? No. Oh, I've been really cold against him. He said yes. What is your name? Do you wish us harm? That was clear, yes. Did you hear that? <laughs> That's a terrible question to ask. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what you want the answer to. Stay, stay with us, stay with us. Do you wish to kill us? I'm going to drop that train on this. Do you want us dead? Rather more good line of questioning. What is your name? Steve. 
I thought it said Ian. <laughs> is it Ian? Hi, Steve. Steve? I said Steve. Are you Steve? Is it yes? Do you want to talk to us? No. No. So it does appear no. That was definite no. Are you playing games with us, Steve? I heard a noise next to me, I don't like it. Is there five of you, Steve? No. No. Is there six of you? Including you? Six. I said six, didn't he? Six. A six. With we're outnumbered. Six. Six. You've got six. Do you like us, Steve? You and your friends. Six. Six. We know. We know. Do six of you, Steve? Oh, I said six, six, six. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, six, six, six. Can you repeat my name, Steve? My name is Rob. Say Rob. Say Rob. That sounded like Rob. That sounded a bit like Rob, didn't it? Did you work here, Steve? Did you work in the coal mine? No. no. What do you think of this little gadget, John? Pretty cool. I think it'll be interesting, won't it? I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. Do you think, you think it'd be good to try that hotel in a few weeks' time? Yeah, we can give it a good shot. And with the time now after 10pm, we reluctantly decided to move on. Andy was eager to get access to the final area of the tunnel, an area which you don't get to see on the daytime tours. We radioed through to the second Dave. And after five short minutes, the tunnel was bathed in bright torchlight, which grew brighter the nearer he got to us. Dave led us through the gate into the area beyond, which was blocked off with sandbags after only a short distance. He explained the damage done to this area of the tunnel was during the Great Storm of the 28th of June, only a few months earlier, but a day that will live long in the memory as it was the worst storm in the recent history of the city of Newcastle. A month's worth of rain fell in just two hours, causing virtually all of the roads to flood and be closed as the streets ran like rivers. The Metro Centre shopping centre flooded, as did the Tyne Tunnel and the Newcastle Central train station. Video footage of the Tyne Bridge being struck by lightning made the news worldwide as 1,500 individual lightning strikes illuminated the stormy skies over the city during that two-hour window of chaos. The effect that it had on the Victoria Tunnel was devastating, as it was flooded right up to the roof. All of the electrics were fried, including the fire alarm system, the lighting and the sound. The only thing that wasn't ruined was the radio system. It's only thanks to the hard work and determination of volunteers such as Dave and Dave that the tunnel tours were back up and running almost immediately. I left Andy, who loves anything to do with the tunnel, grilling Dave on all things tunnelly, as Tom listened in keenly. John and I decided to try and communicate with Steve, who we'd been speaking to just beyond the heavy iron door. We stood next to the door which was open, but still, 
and we asked Steve to use our energy to move the door. We encouraged him, and we both believed as if there was no possible way the door wouldn't move. But sadly, it didn't move at all. Steve, if you're with us, can you um, close the gate to this area? Yes, can you move the gate? Steve. It's open. Move the gate. Can you move the gate, Steve? Steve, move the gate. Use our energy and move the gate, Steve. Move the gate. So now we're giving you the opportunity to prove that you are here. This is a heavy old gate. It's a... It's a monkey. Filthy. Um, if you could move this gate. Come on, Steve. Borrow our energy and move the gate. Move the gate. Move the gate. Come on, Steve. We know move you can do it, Steve. Move Don't the move gate. it a little bit. Just give it a shove. Or move the ball on the gate. We changed tact, and we challenged Steve to display his power, proved to us that even he had the capability to move the door. Again, nothing. Once Andy had finished discussing the tunnel with Dave, Dave left us to it, and the four of us agreed to hold one last vigil further along the tunnel, nearer the entrance. Time was against us, we had the tunnel 8pm till 11pm, and we had less than 30 minutes remaining. Okay, if there's any spirits here with us and in this tunnel, could you make yourself known by making a noise, touching one of us, speaking, banging? Just beyond the final blast door on our return leg along the tunnel, we stood silently in a circle, torches off, in absolute darkness. John asked aloud for a sign, a noise, something visible, affect us in some way. However, nothing happened. But we all openly admitted that it felt flat. We felt alone. We tried to stay positive and continue to press for results, but it just wasn't happening. The remaining time passed by quickly but uneventfully. We'd had a great night and we chatted excitedly about the last few hours as we made our way back up the entrance where the two Daves were waiting for us. We dropped our hard hats into a box and resurfaced into the mild night's air. We thanked the Daves for the great night, handshakes all round, and we headed back to the Clooney pub where we had parked. In conclusion, it was a great return to ghost hunting in our own backyard, and Andy readily admitted to me as we walked back from the tunnel towards my car that it may well have been the greatest Friday night that he's ever had. But what did we experience that could be classed as paranormal? I captured two unusual photographs, which seemed to contain a thick fog or mist. When I showed the others and discussed it with them, we all agreed that it may well be my breath captured in the image. It's tricky to say, as the second one in particular, which contains the chemical toilet in the photo, looks far more like cigarette smoke than breath to me. It's that thick, but none of us smoke. As ever though, with our rational heads on, we can't rule anything out so we have to discount these images as not being conclusive evidence of a spirit being present in the Victoria Tunnel. The flash of light I saw when we made our first attempts to contact spirit was strange. We thought it might have been Andy, but it's now clear that it wasn't, so I'm not sure how to explain it rationally. The most compelling element of the entire investigation was the Frank's Box session with our new friend Steve. We really can't say that it was 100% definitely a spirit communicating, due to the nature of the device we were using, 
However, I'm fascinated. And after testing this device out in a few other locations, I would be interested to take the box back below ground and see if Steve fancies talking to us again. Thank you for joining me for this special episode, I hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll aim to put one of these types of episodes out every month. If you're not a Patreon supporter, and you're listening to this in the future after I've released it to everybody, you could get access to these bonus pods a few months earlier by becoming a Patreon supporter for only £3 a month, and you'll get access to all of the weekly pods early too. For more information check out the podcast description, or you can head over to the website at www.how-haunted.com. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod, or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod, where you will see photos galore relating to our investigation in the Victoria Tunnel. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. Thank you so much for accompanying me for this very special paranormal adventure. Stay safe, and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted?
try to fight off the zombies. John will be eaten first. Because I think John will just give up. Oh, will be a zombie? Yeah. Yeah.